Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 30, The Lost Army. In the spring of 525 BC, the vast invasion force of Cambyses II set out across the deserts of northern Arabia to effect the conquest of Egypt. The Persian king had spent the first four years of his reign preparing for the assault. The shipbuilders of Phoenicia had been commissioned to provide a massive fleet of high-tech triremes, the first ever employed by the Persians. Troops had been demanded and received from all corners of the empire, from the Ionian Greeks of the west to the Scythian nomads of the east, and Arab soldiers had been recruited to guide the army along the quickest route to the Egyptian frontier. While Cambyses led the invasion force, his commanding general was the experienced Greek mercenary Phanes of Holocarnassus, former friend and advisor to the great pharaoh Amos II. But the friendship had been broken, and the pharaoh lay dead in his golden sarcophagus, and Phanes was now devoted to winning the Persian king his long-sought prize. Seeking every advantage, Phanes supposedly had his troops pin cats to their shields, knowing that Egyptians considered the animals sacred and might hesitate before attacking. Traveling through the desolate corridor between the old Edomite capital of Petra and Nabonidus' desert refuge of Tama, the Persian army soon arrived at the gates of Pelusium. As easternmost city of Lower Egypt, situated on the easternmost branch of the Nile, Pelusium had often served as the first line of defense against foreign invasion. It was here that the Kushite prince Taharqa had held off the armies of Sennacherib, and where Amos II had routed the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the wake of his father's passing, it was left to the young pharaoh Samtik III to lead this defense. As the two armies confronted each other, Samtik took the opportunity to exact some revenge for Phanes' betrayal. In his hurry to flee, the Greek general had left his sons behind in Egypt, and the pharaoh had brought them to the front lines. With Phanes looking on, Samtik ordered their throats to be cut over a large bowl. The blood was mixed with water and wine, then drank by Samtik and his officers. Only after the grim spectacle had been completed was the battle finally joined. It's no particular measure of Samtik's courage or ability that the Battle of Pelusium resulted in a crushing defeat for Egyptian forces. Despite any hesitation by Egyptians to fire on feline-shielded opponents, Samtik's Greek mercenaries were likely equal to those pressed into service by the Persian king. In fact, this may have been the first time in history that Greeks from the same polis were compelled to fight one another under the command of foreign rulers. But 
In addition to Phanes's clever tactics, it was mainly a case of the Egyptians being vastly outnumbered. The battle's aftermath left concrete proof of the stoutness of the Egyptian defense. Herodotus, who visited the battlefield years later, described a veritable sea of skulls in the Nile Basin. He even noted that the Egyptian skulls were physically harder than those of the Persians, which he attributed to shaving their heads from a young age. His contemporary, the Greek historian Tessius, recorded that 50,000 Egyptian soldiers died at Pelusium, compared to only 7,000 lost among Persian forces. Samtik III survived the battle to flee to Memphis with the remainder of his army. Cambyses pursued him, now joined by the Persian fleet, which had sailed south from Phoenicia into the Nile Delta. Perhaps in a nod to his father's memory, Cambyses decided to give the Egyptians one last opportunity to avoid further bloodshed. He dispatched a Persian herald in a ship crewed by Mytilenaeans to sail to the port of Memphis and plead with the Egyptians to surrender. Phanes, who knew Egyptian pride as well as anyone, had likely advised Cambyses not to bother. Cushites and Libyans aside, only two truly foreign invaders had ever exerted domination over Egypt. The most successful, the Hyksos, had only extended their rule over half the kingdom, before eventually being expelled. The Neo-Assyrians had barely managed to control Lower Egypt for a few decades, and only done so by using native Egyptian rulers. Surrendering the entire country to a foreign king was something no Egyptian pharaoh would ever consider. To prove the point, the Egyptians attacked and seized the herald's ship, killed everyone on board, and carried their torn limbs back to Memphis. Cambyses was furious at both a defiance and the breach of diplomatic protocol, and pledged that ten Egyptians would die for every Mytilenean killed during the taking of Memphis. Total war again resumed. Memphis held out for only a short time before being taken. After four years of planning and a flawlessly executed campaign, Cambyses had accomplished his great goal. Egypt was his. Entering Memphis in triumph and hailed as the pharaoh metsu or offspring of Ra, Cambyses had a few items on his short-term to-do list. First, to avenge his Mytilene contingent, 2,000 prominent Egyptians were put to death. The pharaoh Samtik III was then brought to him in chains. Still in a vengeful mood, Cambyses ordered that the pharaoh's daughter be enslaved, then had his son dismembered before his eyes. Samtik himself was spared and sent back to Persia with instructions that he be treated well. Cambyses reserved the lion's share of his rage for the pharaoh who had tried to deceive him, Samtik's father, Amos II. The great king had Amos's tomb desecrated and his mummy removed and brought to Memphis. Then, and here's where things get a little weird, he had it whipped, stuck with goads, and plucked out all its hair. Since the embalmed body wouldn't fall apart to his satisfaction, he had it burned an ancient Egyptian punishment to forever deny the pharaoh an afterlife. It's hard to imagine Cyrus the Great acting with the same kind of petty malice, and maybe the first sign of how Cambyses would have difficulty living up to his father's legend.
Few players in the Egyptian drama would fare well in its aftermath. Exiled to distant Susa, Samtik III would meet his end within the year. Accused of plotting a rebellion against the great king, he would be forced to kill himself by drinking bull's blood. A few years later, an equally grim fate would visit Polycrates. Infuriated by the constant Samian attacks along the Ionian coast, the Anatolian satrap, Oroates, devised a trap to ensnare the tyrant. He sent word to Polycrates that Cambyses had ordered his, Oroates' death, for some fictitious offense. If the tyrant would come to Sardis and pledge his support to Oroates, he'd be richly rewarded with Lydian gold. Polycrates' daughter cautioned against the trip. She dreamt of him floating in the air, being washed by Zeus and anointed by the sun god Helios, which she believed might foreshadow his death. In the end, the lure of Lydian gold proved too strong, and Polycrates sailed to Sardis. Arriving at the capital, the troublesome tyrant was seized, impaled on a stake until he died in agony, then had his corpse publicly crucified. His daughter's prophecy was fulfilled as rain soon fell, and his body was washed by Zeus. Then the sun came out, and he was anointed by Helios. Back in Memphis, Cambyses' installation as pharaoh and great chief of the foreign lands had been met with general resignation, or at least without open resistance. While Persian troops and administrators were dispatched to secure the kingdom's power centers, the great king appointed a local official to instruct him on how to conduct himself like an Egyptian pharaoh. He even left a royal inscription in the Serapeum of Saqqara, recording his burial of a sacred Apis bull, with all customary honors. The patented Persian blend of military might and cultural sensitivity worked its usual magic, and both the Egyptian military and general population soon fell in line. The powerful priesthood of Amun, however, was a different story. While feigning deference to the new regime, they seriously dug in their heels when Cambyses tried to tax their enormous temple estates, something no native pharaoh had ever attempted. In response to their defiance, the priests were subjected to increasingly harsh measures by the Persian authorities, until they were finally forced to cave in. They would never forgive Cambyses for his rough treatment, and would later do everything possible to slander his memory. While lacking his father's temperate disposition, Cambyses had clearly inherited Cyrus's passion for conquest. The great king had hardly begun incorporating Egypt into the Persian Empire than he was eyeing its frontiers for new targets of opportunity. First, he decided to lead an army south to conquer the kingdom of Cush. Driven from Napata and their great temple of Jebel Barkal only a generation before, the Nubians had no intention of surrendering their new capital of Meroe. Using their superior knowledge of the terrain, the Kushites proceeded to wage a tenacious guerrilla war that inflicted heavy losses on the invading Persian troops. In the end, Cambyses was forced to retreat with his army back into Egypt. Since an attack on Libya was unnecessary, as Phanes had already concluded a favorable treaty with local chiefs, 
Cambyses next turned his attention to the coastal Greek territory of Cyrenaica. First, to demonstrate his respect and generosity, Cambyses returned Amos' former queen, Laodice, to her father, King Bodice III of Cyrene. At the same time, he dispatched a 50,000-strong army, under his trusted general Phanes, to capture the Egyptian oracle of Amun, who just happened to be located in the Siwa Oasis, just south of Cyrenaica. If this sounds like a bit of overkill, it's because, well, it is. Sending 50,000 troops to capture an oracle kind of begs for more explanation. Unfortunately, Cambyses' exact motives remain something of a mystery. Was it an opening gambit in an assault on Cyrenaica? Maybe even an effort to secure the blessings of the oracle before launching an attack? We just really do not know. What we do know is what happened next. Phanes led his 50,000-strong force out into the desert, and they were never heard from again. Gone. Vanished. Poof. Supposedly buried by a massive sandstorm that sprang up out of nowhere. This was the famous Lost Army of Cambyses, subject of stories, legends, and numerous archaeological expeditions. It was also, apparently, the end of Phanes, the Greek general who'd successfully betrayed Egypt into the hands of the Persians. For Cambyses, it was just another hugely frustrating setback. Still craving North African conquests, his mind next turned to Carthage. During their capture of Phoenicia, the Persians had learned of the colony's existence and heard that its wealth and power rivaled the rich Phoenician port cities of the Levant. Even better, Cambyses had Phoenician sailors and Phoenician ships readily at hand, who would know the best strategy to employ for a seaborne assault. Summoning his chief Phoenician officers, the great king commanded them to devise a plan for the conquest of Carthage. To his astonishment, they flat-out refused. Simply and eloquently, the Phoenicians told Cambyses that they could never be compelled, even upon pain of death, to make war against their countrymen. Considering his recent string of military fiascos, Cambyses must have pressed them pretty hard to reconsider their decision, but they stubbornly refused to budge. To his credit, he didn't go all Neo-Assyrian on them. In fact, I'm guessing that some small part of him must have respected their courage and integrity. But still, it's hard to feel like you're king of the four corners of the world when you've been routed in Nubia, denied in Carthage, and, oh yeah, you just misplaced a whole army somewhere in the western desert. Well, at least things couldn't get any worse. I mean, what else could possibly go wrong? I'm glad you asked, Cambyses, because while you were down in Egypt nursing your anger-frustration cocktail, your brother, Bardiah, decided to take your empire away from you. From the perspective of the Persian court in Pasargidae, Cambyses was a pretty serious disappointment. He'd probably been cut some slack for falling short of Cyrus's shining example. I mean, come on. But still, the black marks against him had really mounted during his short time in power. 
First, Cambyses had spent almost his entire reign either in Babylon, preparing for his Egyptian assault, or in Egypt itself. Though newly built, Pasargadae was as jealous of royal attention as any imperial capital. The great king's neglect had estranged him from both the city and, more importantly, from those who wielded power there during his long absence. Rumors had also reached the Persian court of Cambyses's capricious violence and his string of military fiascos. In contrast to these distant echoes of failure, the nobles of Pasargadae were regularly graced with the presence of Cyrus's other son, Bardaya. Strong, confident, and superlatively Aryan, his powerful build had earned him the nickname Tangnoxarces, or Mighty Frame. And have you seen him shoot a bow? Don't even get me started. Defender of the eastern frontier and a wise and able negotiator, Bardaya seemed to reflect his father in ways that Cambyses never could. Cambyses had always had a dim awareness of the dangers his long absence might bring. That's exactly why he brought so many powerful nobles with him to Egypt, in order to keep an eye on them and prevent them from stirring up trouble back home. But he couldn't bring them all, and he knew that his Egyptian activities were likely not playing well back home. In early 522 BC, with his spidey sense tingling, Cambyses decided to make a sprint for the capital. On March 11th, with his brother en route, Bardaya openly laid claim to the Persian throne. He even sweetened the deal by offering the empire's citizens a three-year exemption from paying tribute. With concern quickly mounting to desperation, Cambyses pressed his army onward through Syria. As it turns out, maybe he was in a little too much of a hurry. Mounting his horse one day, he accidentally stabbed himself in the thigh with his own sword. The wound got infected. A few days later, Cambyses was dead. In the midst of preparing for civil war, Bardaya suddenly, miraculously, found himself the unchallenged ruler of the Persian Empire. Quickly acclimating to the new state of affairs, Bardaya retired to his summer capital of Ecbatana to dream great dreams of his coming conquests. Meanwhile, the army of Cambyses was left to mill around in the oppressive summer heat of Syria. A mixture of Persians and Medes, powerful and lowly, loyal and rebellious, the choice of their next action was unclear. Fortunately, Bardaya made it for them. Needing to recoup the losses from his general tax amnesty, the great king ordered that the estates of the nobles who'd ridden with Cambyses be seized for the imperial treasury. To the Persian court, it was a troubling sign that their new king might lack his father's wisdom after all. To the nobles in Syria, it was a simple declaration of war. Yet, not so simple. An open and bloody civil war among the Persians might destroy their newly won empire, or, at the very least, shatter it into a dozen petty kingdoms. The main Syrian conspirators, seven Persian nobles of impeccable lineage, pondered whether a different approach might win at least one of their number an intact and unified empire. 
One young noble pressed a scheme to assassinate Bardiya as he rode from summer to winter Persian capitals, descending from the Zagros to the lowlands of Pasargadai. The others cautioned that the plan was too soon, too bold, and too likely to end in failure, but the noble was unmoved. In his former role of lance-bearer to the Persian king Cambyses, Darius was accustomed to striking quickly and decisively at his enemies. Besides, his own lineage stretched back to Achaemenes, founder of the Persian royal line, and he had no doubts about the righteousness of their cause. The conspirators were persuaded, and, pledging their lives to the plan, rode out from Syria toward the Zagros. By the time they reached the foothills, they received word that Bardiya was already on the move. Fall had come, and the great king's court had already left Ecbatana and made a brief stop at the fortress of Sikyavautish. The fortress overlooked a beautiful valley called Nisea, home to tens of thousands of white horses, widely considered the finest in the Persian Empire. Bardaya was enjoying the pleasant setting, supposedly with his concubine, when Darius and his companions boldly rode up to the front gate. Confronted with nobles of such high rank, claiming urgent business with the king, the stunned guards quickly granted them entrance. Before anyone could realize the true nature of the threat, the conspirators had burst into Bardaya's chambers. The ensuing struggle was ended when Darius's brother, Artaphernes, plunged his dagger into the great king's chest. Just like that, the deed was done, and the Persian Empire had lost its second ruler in the same year. But Cambyses's death had been an accident, while this was clear-cut regicide. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, did I say clear-cut? Please strap yourselves in, because Darius is about to dazzle everyone with some seriously inspired storytelling. Well, of course, killing Bardaya would be a horrible, unforgivable act, and it was really a shame that Cambyses had killed his own brother. What's that? Yeah, Cambyses killed his brother. When? Wow, years ago. Back when he went crazy in Egypt. No, I was with him in Egypt. Trust me, he was totally bonkers. Yeah, so anyway, Cambyses had sent word to have Bardaya killed years ago. What's that? Then who's been on the throne for the past few months? That's a really good question. I was really hoping you are going to ask me that. Are you ready? Wait, lean in. Okay, here's the deal. That guy over there, the one with the dagger sticking out of his chest? Yeah, that one. He's really a priest, a magus, named Galmata. I know, crazy, right? And he used his magical powers to assume the role of Bardaya. It's really lucky that we stumbled across the plot and came here to, you know, take care of things. Speaking of which, we should probably get rid of his body, too. Just in case it, I don't know, explodes or something. Whatever wizards do when they die. Okay, so I had some fun with it, but that is seriously the story that Darius and his partners spread around to cover up their bald-faced coup. The reason they actually believed the story might have legs was simply this. Persians considered themselves to be the most honest people on the face of the earth, 
and to accuse a high-born noble of telling a lie, especially a ginormous, magnificent lie like this one, would be at absolute odds with their most deeply held core beliefs. And here, finally, is where we need to digress into a discussion of the Magi, Ahura Mazda, and Zoroastrianism. The prophet Zarathustra, known in Greek as Zoroaster, is notoriously difficult to fix in both place and time. He probably lived in either northeast Iran or southwest Afghanistan. But he could have lived there any time between 1700 BC and the reign of Darius I. Archaeological evidence and linguistic comparisons supposedly give us a more likely window of 1500 to 1200 BC, in other words, the Late Bronze Age. The Iranians of this era, like other contemporary civilizations, worshipped multiple deities. Among these was one named Ahura Mazda, Ahura meaning light and Mazda meaning wisdom, making him the god of light and wisdom. As the legend goes, when Zarathustra was 30 years old, he had a series of visions that led him to believe that Ahura Mazda was the only god, the uncreated god, who had created the world and everything in it. Following this revelation, he wrote a series of hymns known as the Gothas that became the core of a later Zoroastrian religious tome called the Avesta. In this new framework, Ahura Mazda represented wisdom, benevolence, and general goodness, and, in particular, was upholder of the concept of Arta, or truth. In opposition stood the false deities of the old religions, called Daivas by Zarathustra, who delighted in war and strife. Foremost among them was Angra Mainyu, God's adversary, an evil spirit, and the master of deception. As you might have guessed, the local powers that be, particularly entrenched priesthoods, were less than enthusiastic about the prophet's new worldview. Zarathustra was eventually forced to leave his home and travel to a neighboring kingdom, where the royal family embraced his ideas and eventually made them the official religion of their land. Sometime in his 70s, the prophet died, possibly slain by an assassin's dagger. Over the centuries separating Zarathustra's life from the reign of the Achaemenid kings, the worship of Ahura Mazda became widely established among the Persians and Medes of the Zagros. Its most well-known elements included stepped fire altars, since fire and light were symbols of truth and sacred to Ahura Mazda, and the hereditary priestly caste known as the Magi. While some Magi may have still worshipped Ahura Mazda in conjunction with other Iranian gods, by the 6th century BC it appeared that the monotheistic reforms of Zarathustra had become the rule rather than the exception. To followers of Zarathustra, the human condition was a lifelong struggle between Arta, the truth, and Druj, the great lie. The purpose of mankind was to sustain the truth through positive thoughts, words, and deeds, and to root out and destroy falsehood wherever it might hide. 
Whether the Achaemenid Persians were strict Zoroastrians is open to debate, particularly since they showed great tolerance for other gods and religions. But there's no doubt that, exclusively or otherwise, they were worshippers of Ahura Mazda. For a true believer to learn that for months the empire had been ruled by a follower of the Great Lie, a deceptive magi who'd passed himself off as the Great King, well, it just went to show you how powerful evil could become when left unchecked. Fortunately, the falsehood had been discovered and, for Ahura Mazda's sake, destroyed. Now, this isn't to say that everyone bought into Darius's story. In fact, events will soon show that he'd have to fight tooth and nail to hold on to the empire he'd stolen. But it is to say that Darius knew which Persian buttons to push to portray his actions in the most heroic possible light. A few days later, in the dead of night, the seven co-conspirators rode out from the fortress of Sikivautish. At a predetermined spot, they halted, faced east, and waited for the coming dawn. Just as they'd pledged themselves jointly to the death of Bardaya, they'd also pledged that whosoever horse whinnied first after sunrise would be hailed as great king of the Persian Empire. When Darius's was first to do so, his companions dismounted, fell to their knees, and hailed him as their new ruler. Or at least that was the later Persian propaganda just as later Greek propaganda would claim that Darius had cheated by having his groom, um, excite his horse so that it would be first to whinny that fateful morning. It's far more likely that consensus had already been reached by less arbitrary means. Among the seven conspirators, only one, a noble named Otanes, was Darius's equal in station, and had already removed himself from consideration. As instigator of the coup, and most bold and ambitious of the conspirators, it would fall to Darius to try to claim the Persian throne. Riding to Pasargadai with his companions, Darius probably also sent word to his army, still encamped in Syria, to join him in the capital. Only in the presence of all the most powerful clan chiefs could Darius's claims be weighed and the empire's future be decided. Where once any of the Persians assembled would have been content with horses, weapons, and a few villages to raid, Cyrus had introduced them to the unimaginable wealth and power of empire. Now, no one wanted to go back to the old ways. And the best way to prevent that seemed obvious. The Persians needed to pledge themselves once again to a single strong ruler. It was only a question of who. If Darius's claims were true, then he was a great hero, and there could be no one more deserving of the throne. And if they were a lie? Well, of course, no one would ever say that openly. But hypothetically, if they were, then Darius had proven himself to be bold, imaginative, capable, and ruthless. And really, weren't those also traits that could benefit the empire? In late 522 BC, Darius was crowned the great king Darius I in Pasargadai. Soon after, he traveled with his court to Ecbatana. News was already arriving 
of disturbances, revolts, and rebellions spreading like wildfire across the Persian Empire. Darius would be forced to deal with them one by one. Then he'd undertake an even more ambitious challenge, proving to the world that Persian greatness hadn't ended with the death of Cyrus. Next episode, it's Darius versus pretty much everyone. But it's okay. It turns out that those are pretty even odds. And yes, I know, we didn't get to it this week, but we finally will. Pisistratus, Hippias, Hipparchus, and the countdown to Athenian democracy. All this next time on The Ancient World.